I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, we are welcoming Sherry Hirsch into our studio. Sherry is a rabbi, author, and spirituality expert. She currently serves as the senior rabbinic scholar for Hillel International. Her mission is to empower individuals to become more in tune with their well-being, way of life, and ability to impact the world. Hirsch has served as a spirituality expert for the Today Show and numerous other media outlets. She counsels private clients, speaks nationwide at engagements for corporate and religious organization, and teaches classes across a variety of themes. She is a wife, a mother, a rabbi, and a generally all-around interesting human being. We are thrilled to have her here in our studio. Welcome to Say It Forward. Thank you so much. We're really happy to have you here. I mean, to be a woman in your business... It's really quite interesting to begin with. So if it's okay with you, can we start at what your path was to becoming a rabbi? Well, I can tell you that my parents absolutely did not want me to be a rabbi. And when I told them that I was going to be a rabbi, the first question my very feminist mother asked me was, who's going to marry you? I was like, seriously? Really? That's where you went? <laughs> I think that still happens these days. I think days. so, too. Yeah. And so you're so yeah. cute, too. I can't even imagine that your mother would have thought that nobody was going to marry you. <laughs> I thought, really? But I was from Ohio. I grew up in Palos Verdes, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And I was a cheerleader in high school, a tennis player, like not on the path to the rabbinate, right? If you said, who's that girl? What's she going to be when she grows up? You wouldn't have said, oh, clearly she's going to be a rabbi. But I must have had the seeds deeply within me because there's 14 rabbis in my family, all men. And at 14, I got in a very serious argument with my father. And I said, I will show you, I will be a rabbi and I will lead the Jewish people. And he said, what are you talking about? Women can't even be rabbis. And I said, no, I'll show you. So seriously, there was something already in me that I sometimes think it was genetic, like we have a Mm -hmm. religious genetic vibe. But I went to... High school, I went to Smith College, I transferred to Northwestern University, and I was on my way to medical school because that's what smart girls did at that generation, right? If you were smart, you were going to be a doctor. And I always on the side was studying with the rabbi, which is really crazy because I remember when my brother, the week before his bar mitzvah, my parents put on his bed the gift of tefillin, which is these phylacteries that literally is black leather that marries you to God. And I couldn't wait till my bat mitzvah to get this very... But women don't wear tzvillin. Well, I, in my head, I was like, I can't wait for my bat mitzvah. I'm going to get these very sexy, cool black leather straps <laughs> that I get to marry God. I thought, what could be cooler? But two days before my bat mitzvah, two silver candlesticks came. And I burst into tears and thought, this is so unjust. Why does my brother get to have some relationship with God that I don't? So I always started studying on the side. And an Orthodox rabbi at the Hillel at Northwestern, I was leaving a study session, and he said to me, look, Sherry, I'm not sure what I believe about women becoming rabbis, but if I did believe, without a doubt, you would be a great one. And what I often tell people is you can say something to someone in passing that can be life-changing. Like Mrs. Reidelek said to me in French class that I will never speak French and je parle français, right? Like, right, <laughs> it can be it. both for the negative or for the positive. And he said that to me, and it was like I couldn't get it out of my mind. Now, how do I want to ask this question? Because of the fact that you got silver candlesticks, which was a very common gift, because mm-hmm. all the women are also always set in the Jewish mm-hmm. religion. We're always set to be the people that have the Shabbat services, and right. we cover our heads, and we do the prayer on Friday night, and you know, light the candles, and that's what the role of women is, although it is certainly changing over the years. But that's really what the role of women was in the Jewish religion and in the Jewish home. And sort of the center of the universe you know, was around the mother. Mm-hmm. And Jewish people are very... Um, uh, respectful of women, but not as rabbis. Like we would not think that you would be a right, rabbi. Right. They're respectful as long as they're in their delegated space box. and time, right? It's like you can light the Shabbat candles, but you want something else, like you want to study Torah seriously, or you want to be a leader in the community, or you want to fight for justice. That's like, that's not a woman's realm. 
And I see that changing, and I feel very much – I was the 60th female rabbi in the world. So I see myself very much blessed to be able to live at a window of our 5,000-year history where I get yeah. to actually transform impact. And right. you're a young you're a young woman still too, which is <laughs> I'm not you know, sure. I, mean, I just want our, our listeners to understand you're young. I mean, you're not you're not 35, but you're no. I'm going to be 60 65. in a couple months. Yeah, so. you're you're on the young side, and so it, it's interesting. Can you go back to that sort of in the aftermath of having that like seductive thought validated by a person that? Well, I think you know, the Orthodox rabbi. I think that's a very good point, Leanne. The Orthodox rabbi validating even what he didn't necessarily believe, mm-hmm. but seeing in me what was stirring and seeing that there had, that I had real potential was, in fact, very affirming. And I started studying, and the more I studied, the more I realized this was like a calling. It was more than just, oh, I want to do this as my next job. And I even said to my parents, oh, I'm just going to study for the rabbinate, but I'm not going to become a rabbi. I'll go out to medical schools. I'll go to medical school after that. You know, I sort of was trying to calm their fears, calm my fears. And I went to rabbinical school at JTS, which is the conservative seminary. And it Were you was, the only woman? No, there were a couple other women in my class. I was... But predominantly men. Mostly men. And yeah, where's I mean, JTS? Is it it's here? in New York. Oh, in New I York. I spent two years in L.A. It's kind of a complicated situation, but you spend two years in L.A., then you go to Israel, then you go to New York. And it was not the spiritual Mecca that I thought it would be. And I dropped out. And I traveled in Asia. I backpacked. I sat in silence for 12 days and trying to find what it was that was calling to me. And I feel like it's like every Disney movie. You know, you have to make this huge journey around the world to find out that your answers are right in your own backyard. And that is like the theme of every Disney movie. And what I discovered was that I didn't necessarily want to be a rabbi in the very typical way, but I wanted to be a person that could heal people, communicate Judaism, and do it for a larger audience than than just the Jewish people. And when I started to look at it through that lens, then a lot changed for me. Let's stop for one second and put a pin in this, because I would like to know what the experience was like of sitting in silence for 12 days. So where were you? I was doing Vipassana meditation, which is a form of meditation that's an Eastern meditation and where you have no physical or verbal contact. So for 12 days, it is a very set protocol. And the third day, I actually thought I had died. I I literally thought I had died and gone to hell. And this is what hell was. The sixth day was probably worth about 25 years of therapy. It clarified for me so much in my life and let me release a lot of things. And I thought, oh my God, I've spent so much money. I could have just come here. Um, (laughs) But what I discovered about (laughs) it more than anything was that what I didn't miss was talking. And I'm a talker. I mean, I remember in school, I used to get sent to the principal's office all the time for talking. And one time I got in trouble and I said, I will show you, I will make a business out of talking. And look here, I've got a business talking. (laughs) You spoke your whole life forward. (laughs) I really did. But at the end of meditating for 10 full days in silence and two days on the end of reentry. What I uncovered about myself was that what I missed more than anything is our nonverbal cues with people. The wink of an eye, the touch of a hand, putting someone's hand in yours, wrapping yourself around another human being. I had far more longing for that than I did for verbal communication. And it came to really change for me how I interacted with people. And I do. I put my, I'm put a touchy person now in a way that I never was. I look people straight in the eye. That was what I missed. And it wasn't talking. I got used to the not talking, which was surprising to me, of all people. <laughs> so, that's so interesting. I've met a couple of other people who have done that. And they had varying degrees of tremendous struggle getting through that period. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the guys that I know that did that thought he was also what you just said. I mean, he thought he was at the end of his life. He said, I can't find a way to get through this. And he did get through it. And then when he was through it, he said, oh, my God, that was an amazing experience. But in the middle of it, the darkness was omnipresent. The darkness is dark. And it's interesting to me because we have to sit in a particular position. And every day they talk 
for about a half an hour with the teacher. He talks to you. You don't talk back. And he talks to you about the pain of it. And I didn't have any physical pain. I thought it was so strange. The minute I got home for three months, I had to carry around a cushion to sit on. I was in so much physical pain. So it was interesting because when I was addressing it on a very spiritual level, the physical pain was lifted. But once I was in the cacophony of my daily life, the physical pain came back in a very serious way. Mm. It made me really think a lot about the relationship between the body and the spirit. Mm -hmm. I get this overwhelming feeling listening to you talk of your clarity. Did that come from that experience or did you have that clarity before that experience? I think clarity is something that we come to every day of our life. I feel like we talk a lot about, or I talk a lot about, that God is in process and that we're in process and that as we develop, God develops. And whatever you call God, I mean, I use that word, but I always tell people there's 88 names for God in the Bible and there's only 500 words. So clearly nobody knows what that is called. So call it what you want. But for me, I think there's a process of becoming every day. And I think clarity comes each day anew in that process. And I ask God for it every morning in my prayers. I ask, you know, to be clear of thought and to be able to see people and to really see into them as opposed to just, you know, being yeah. moving about the country. I love this advice in a way because everybody can everybody can tap into what you're talking about actually. Yeah. And this notion of saying to God, help me help me understand clearly what what I can do to serve you know, you and the highest good in the world and, and that being a process and understanding that you haven't failed because every single day you do it again and again and again. Right. And it's constant. Super powerful. I always used to laugh because my mother, who's a huge pivotal figure in my life, may she rest in peace. Every day when she walked us out to school and dropped us off, she would say, go make the world better. And I, I would say, can't you be like all the other mothers? I mean, they say, go be happy. Go have a good day. Go have fun. And she'd be like, go make the world better. Go figure out how to solve the world's problems. And I would think to myself, Ugh, I have like the most heavy mother. I hope you don't say that to other people. And of course, all my friends as adults say, your mom was intense. But what I loved about it was that she was telling us each day, our goal is not to be happy. Happy is a byproduct of living a life of meaning. And that she was telling us every day, go find meaning, make the world better, serve others, and happiness will come and happiness will go and all kinds of other things will come and go. But you really want to be here for a limited time and you want to do something important. And I admire it very much. And my brother yeah. really took that lesson away too. How many are you in your family? Just my brother and I. Just, when did your mom pass? My mother passed in 2010 from brain cancer at 64. My father died at 58 from pancreatic cancer. Oh, and my boy. parents were only 18 years older than us. So it was really like losing friends yeah. that raised us because we kind of raised each other. And so, again, grieving is a You've process. You've a lot of personal sadness. Yeah. Yeah. I always find myself today thinking about, as a Jewish person, I think to myself that the future for the Jewish people is so difficult. There are so few of us left. And it's literally like a pimple on the ass of an elephant. I mean, you know, there are, there are you know, the, the range and number of Jewish people that are alive, that are left alive in the world today, ranges between 13 million and 18 million. Yeah. And there's a lot of intermarriages. And it's terrifying to think that that's how many Jewish people are left in the world today. Well, Rebecca, I want to say two things. First of all, I know you have four children, so I, you're doing the part for your Jewish for the Jewish yeah, people. Neither, yeah. I, every time that you give, it's just numbers, right? There's a numbers game. And so I have five children, and that's what we do is we change the numbers by the amount of children that we bring into the world. And it doesn't have to be that we actually biologically have them. I have four biological and one foster, but that we raise Jewish children and bring them into the world. I don't think intermarriage is the biggest threat. I think if people really understood and embraced what it means to live a meaningful life, whatever expression of religion that is, or way of life, it could be yoga, it could be music, it can be art, but to really find joy in a meaning and to live passionately, I think we'd be in a much better world, yeah. a safer world, a more communicative world. It's interesting. I try to do something for someone else every day and not get found out. And that is my life policy. And if everyone did that every day, how different the world would be. Not, it, once it's found out, you got to pick something new. But just to do something for someone else because you're in service of making the world better. Not because you want to get acknowledged, not because you want to be thanked, but just because you want to make the world better. It could be very small. People have become very transactional. I do this for you. You do this for me. Right. And I even see it when I do things for people. Sometimes they'll say, like, what can I do for you? I'm like, what are you talking about? That it's become a very transactional world. And I think 
the more transactional we become, the more damaging it is to our soul. When we think non-transactionally, like how can I be of service to you? What can I do for you without any expectation of transaction? Then we start to change the paradigm. In your work with Hillel, which really deals with young people, do you talk about these themes? It's funny. I I spent 10 years being a pulpit rabbi and working in a large synagogue with 2,500 families. And then I wrote books and did television. And I always wanted to work with young people between the ages of 18 and 24. And I saw this mental health crisis. And there's a lot of reasons that it's happening. But I really believed we could change the paradigm of how people think, especially young people. And they're malleable at that age enough that we could really help rejigger a lot of the suicidality, the mental health, all this, all these issues that they're having that really boil down to loneliness and disconnectedness. And so Hillel's the vehicle that I work through. And so I'm the head rabbi for Hillel Worldwide. And I'm so privileged. Could you tell our audience uh, about Hillel just briefly? Sure, sure, sure. So uh, think of it as like McDonald's franchises, although I'm not supposed to use that word. (laughs) Every college campus on 600 campuses around the world has a Hillel presence. It is a campus organization that is there to serve Jews and non-Jews. And it's often funny because we hear a lot of non-Jews will be like, are you going to Shabbat dinner on Friday night? And then the Jewish kids will follow them. Oh, that's interesting. It's really to serve as a place to self-actualize human beings to give back to their world. And so it's really on many campuses. So there's 600 campuses where we have a Hillel. I hope that one day they're on every campus at every university. We service about a million students. We have about 2,500 professionals. And we really teach them how to become adults in the world because adulting is very hard at this age. My sons all went to um, uh, Boulder. Oh, sure. And Boulder has a fantastic Kalel organization there. And they all participated and hung around there and went there for Friday nights. And the rabbi there, I think he had, um, not exactly sure, but I think he had seven children, seven or eight, crazy number of children. But it was a safe place for them to go. They all went. Mm. They all spent Fridays there. And to this day, many of their friends, they met at Hillel in, when they went to university. And they have brought that home. And now a lot of these kids are here in Los Angeles because every kid wants to ultimately come to Los Angeles, if, you know, because the weather's so nice here. But um, they were all friends with each other. And it had such a meaningful impact on their life. He's a lovely rabbi. Well, I love that you also shared that with me because, first of all, I'm delighted because University of Colorado has a wonderful Hillel, but also because when you center your life around community, it does. It's, people think, oh, it's religion. I don't do religion. I, you don't have to believe in God. I don't care about that. I always say faith in God is not required. Like, none of that. I, you don't have to do ritual. But when you center your life around community and meaning, whatever that looks like to you, what you are is deeply connected in the world. And what most of us really want to know on a daily basis is that we matter that we matter to another human being and that we matter. And so when you deeply weave yourself in, like your children did at Hillel, you're connected. And then you have friends, you have, you feel important because there's no amount of money that makes you feel that way. There's no, no job that makes you feel that way. I mean, look at so many celebrities struggle with self-esteem and loneliness because their world becomes very tiny. It's a very, uh, it was a very warm and intimate place. The few times that I went to the Friday night dinner when I was visiting my sons, there were all kinds of young people that would show up, you know, dressed in all kinds of garb, you know, from T-shirts and shorts in the dead of winter because they, oh, I'm not cold. You know, the kids <laughs> right. that, I love Which that. every Jewish mother's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> but it was a wonderful, warm and intimate place. And he would make dinner. There would be anywhere from, you know, 10 or 15 at the low end to 50 on the high end. And everybody came. Everybody brought something. Everybody hung out. And they would sit on the stoop for hours and talk to one another. And I, I'm assuming that that's what the goal of Hillel is, to create these environments where these people can go. We just want people to engage, right? We don't have an agenda of how you're supposed to think, how you're supposed to practice. We're not sitting there trying to, like, farm religion down your throat. In fact, many, as I said, many non-Jewish kids come to Hillel, and we help them find their home, which can be in Catholicism. It could be at the gym, whatever, but that's something that has real meaning for them. What's the history of Hillel? Oh, God, I'm so not good at the history. It's But we're about to celebrate our 100th anniversary, and it's been through a lot of changes over the years. Uh, it was a seed vision of a particular philanthropist, and now it's run by Eric Fingerhut, who was actually in the House of Representatives from the state of Ohio. It, he, he didn't come from the Jewish world, even though he's an observant Jew. 
and he ran for governor of Ohio. I mean, so it really is run like a regular organization in the world. And our chief of talent came from Google, went to Harvard Business School. You know, it's my our chief financial officer went to Harvard Law School. Not that you have to go to Harvard to go there, but um, <laughs> how do you how do they uh, coordinate with one another? So we, I work for the National Hillel, which is called Hillel International, and we are the overriding body of all the franchises. So that's how they coordinate, because otherwise it would be very difficult because everybody would be doing, and what we hope to do is really elevate the brand so that you know that you're having a consistent experience at every university. We're not there yet, but we will be. How do you finance this? Every single way that Hillel is financed is by donation, and we have significant philanthropists, but what I tell people often is... No gift is too small. And you hear that all the time. But my husband and I have a philosophy that every place that educated you, from the moment you finish, you give them at least a dollar every year. And if everybody did that, it would change the game, right? People like, I don't have have a big gift. I can't give $150. I can't give $2,000. I can't give $2 million, whatever. You give a dollar. Every single place that educated you or gave you meaning or supported you in your journey. And so you make a big list. Christmas time or Hanukkah time is a good time to do that. And you just keep a list. And guess what? As your life, they want and we want at Hillel consistent givers more than we want anything else. What's Hillel's relationship with APAC? So we have a wonderful relationship. We're a pluralist organization, which means that we don't subscribe to one political philosophy because we are a broad tent and we embrace everyone and their political views. And Hillel's not political. It's pluralist, which means that it embraces all kinds of ways that we understand Judaism and practice Judaism. So APAC is one of the organizations that falls under a political tent and really supports. It's actually not political. APAC is really to support that the government is in support of Israel. The, for our listeners, APEC is the American-Israeli Political Action Committee, and I have uh, I spent I went there last year for the first time to the policy conference. I did fantastic. And, uh, I'm going again this year. Last year I just went with my husband. This year I'm taking my children, and my husband and I and some other crew. I'm, I believe. Have any of you been to APEC? No. There is not a shadow of a debt. Exactly. Uh, it is such an overwhelming place. Even just sitting here thinking about it, I could start crying immediately because the things that they do there and they show you the relationship between America and Israel and Israel is doing so many things and they're creating in so many areas, you know, literature, art, science, medicine, technology. I mean, just a crazy amount of intellectual property comes out of Israel. And they had the guy was telling me this story that there was a you probably heard about this. It was all over the news. A scientist in Israel invented these microscopic tubes that get shown somehow, you know, moved up into the atmosphere and they collect water. And as they get heavier, they come down to the earth and then they dispose they dispense their water. And the amount of anti did you hear about this story? I did. And actually, I love that you're so passionate about it because People think, you know, Israel is such a small country, but so much comes out of it. So just think of Waze, the app that you use every day, yeah. all day long. To get around. And I love that it's you went Israeli, to APAC. Con- I want you company. to come to the Hillel International Conference. I would absolutely I, do you that. You would be amazing. Sorry, we're getting a little into. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, it's amazing that you should totally do that. Anyway, you're right. We are getting yeah. off. I want to so go back to, oh, I'm sorry, go can, ahead. Can I, I do want to go back and talk about this idea of being a pluralist organization and actually being ecumenical because you've said that Hillel is not just for Jewish people. It's for anybody on mm-hmm. a campus who wants to connect with the community and actually uh, reconnect to their faith in people, it sounds like. Not God so much. I mean, God's in there. Well, but. I think Hillel's been really affected by Birthright. Birthright is an organization that allows every single Jew the birthright to go back to Israel for 10 days on a free paid trip. And because of that, we had to really find out what is it, the definition of a Jew, And there was a very wide definition. And we didn't want to use the Holocaust definition, which is that one grandparent was Jewish because we wouldn't let the Nazis determine who was Jewish or not. So people now have all kinds of understandings of what makes them Jewish. And I love these Ancestry.com. I love all these different testing because people will say things like, I had no idea I was Jewish. You know, like I had no idea. And what we're finding actually in Eastern Europe, which is fascinating – And then we'll go back to story. But these survivors of the Holocaust of the are nearing their death and they're turning to their grandchildren and they're saying, 
oh, by the way, I'm Jewish. And so we have all these 18 to 24-year-olds in Poland and Eastern Europe having severe identity crisis. Because can you imagine all your life you heard the Jews are bad, the Jews are bad, and then suddenly, oh, by the way, one last thing, you're Jewish. And so they're having a lot of emotional crisis. I think it's fascinating also that in Eastern Europe, they're grabbing for identity, and in America, they're trying to shed identity. I'd like to go back to your family. So yes. you are you, you did get married. Did your mom see you get married? She did see me get married. And you married a guy. Is he Jewish? He is Jewish. Is he a rabbi too? No. Everybody asked me that. He's a doctor, which was very funny because in my house, you don't marry a doctor because doctors are very— They're not rabbis. They're not—well, not even rabbis. <laughs> they're not businessmen. And— I grew up, my father owned a lighting store. We sold light fixtures and light bulbs. So I have this secret trait. Everybody has their superpower. My superpower is that I can tell you wattage. I can tell you types of lighting. <laughs> That's my superpower. And so in my family, you you marry entrepreneurs. So my parents were like, not a doctor. Every Jewish parent wants a doctor. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but my husband's from Louisiana. That's we, so funny. We you met when I was speaking. <laughs> yeah, they, were, they didn't want a doctor. It's really nice to have a doctor in the family. It really is. And my husband is a physician in, here in town in Los Angeles. But what he, kind of medicine does he practice? He practices internal medicine, but he's from Louisiana. So he's a true Southern boy. And he's delightful. Jewish? Oh, yeah. He's Jewish. So yeah. you My parents didn't think he was Jewish, though, because the Jewish world is like one degree of separation, and everybody knows everybody. And so the fact that my mother and father didn't know someone that knew him and his family, they were they were convinced he wasn't Jewish. They, they were like, he can't be Jewish. I'm like, you don't know every Jew in the world. So you got married to this lovely guy. Were you in university when you met him? No, no, no. I was already a pulpit rabbi. And it's actually very funny because I was I was a rabbi in front of— we had 1,500 people coming on Friday night and about 2,000 coming on Saturday. And people always ask us, what were we doing? And I always say we were giving out alcohol, which was true. We were giving out little <laughs> shots. But we started thinking— the worst sweet wine in the world. <laughs> no, we were giving out good. Are you kidding? Why would we do that? <laughs> and what happened was is that the bima, which is what you stand behind as a rabbi, was built for a 225-pound man. And I am clearly not even You're like, close to that. For our like listeners, she's a tiny little adorable wet. thing. <laughs> so they built me a step stool to stand on, but I still didn't reach the microphone. So it looked ridiculous. So what I did is I put on that Madonna-type mic and came out into the audience. And at first, people kind of jumped back. But then I got dubbed Rabbi Oprah because I was— really interacting with everybody. And re and at first people were like, go back to the Bema. That's where rabbis <laughs> say. And I said, no, I actually want to be with you. My mother used to joke that some people collect stamps, some people collect cars. I collect people. I just love people and I wanted to be closer to them. So I started speaking to them. So I was a pulpit rabbi and I was doing my thing and dating was a little bit tricky because I would have a boyfriend and everything would be fine. And then he would see me in front of 2,500 people speaking with brimstone and fire and the next day, you would be like, I just don't think it's going to work out. <laughs> so it's really interesting about gender. But my husband and I met because I was giving a lecture at a conference in Florida. And we met, and I thought he was adorable. And he told his friend that he wanted someone a little more Jewish than him. And his friend said, oh, that girl's a rabbi. He goes, too Jewish, too Jewish. <laughs> but two weeks later, there was a shooting at a preschool here in L.A., and he called me up and left a very benign message, so much so that for all the women that date out there, I wasn't even sure it was a callback message. I played it for my best friend three times. I was like, do you call back? So I left off a very, very benign message, like, thank you for your solidarity for the Jewish people. And That's a good response. Yeah, it was wow. like very, because you know one benign that, gets a benign. You guys are yeah. holding your cards. And you have really. to really like be boundaried as a rabbi. And we started dating, and we married a year later. And it was easier for him to move to me because of my job than it was for me to move to him. And so he moved out here, and we started our life. Was he already a full doctor then? He'd finished he was already a full school? doctor. Yeah, I was 31. I think he was 37. So then you so you married this lovely guy, and now you're both living in L.A., and now you have five children, four that you gave birth to. Yes. So, so when did that talk, talk about that a little bit? So on one of our first dates, I said at the count of three— Let's say how many children we want. And at the exact same time, we said four. And I was like, huh, that's cute. So we had kind of a rough beginning to our marriage because six months into our marriage, my father got sick with pancreatic. And six months after that, he died. And then we had our first child, Emmett, which means truth. And 
he was born the week that Emmett Smith broke the passing record in oh, wow. football. So everybody thinks we named him for Emmett Smith. We did not. <laughs> we named him because there's this incredible story in the oral tradition of Judaism in which God and the people stop speaking to one another. And God doesn't know how to reignite the conversation. So God drops a small little piece of paper from the sky, and on it is written one word, emet, truth. And that reignites the conversation. And I really felt that I had lost my conversation with God with my father's death because it was so violent and so brutal and that Emmett reignited it. So we had our first child and our first child had a number of challenges, which put pressure on the marriage. Then we had our second child, a daughter, and then a third child. And I was still in the pulpit all this time. So my congregants saw me pregnant, not pregnant, pregnant, not pregnant. They called me the white marshmallow because I had to wear a white robe during high holidays. <laughs> and I was a big marshmallow. And then we, I ended up leaving the pulpit because my mother got sick. And I realized at that point that I was holding everybody else's hands through all their losses. And I wanted to just hold my mother's hand. And I didn't want to share her or that loss with anyone else. It was different with my father. I was able to be in the public eye and still grieve. But with my mother, it, it became too much. And so it I was also so soon. It was so soon. And her, she had brain cancer, which for those of you that know about glioblastoma, it's horrible. A terrorist. I just wanted to be with my mom. So when my mother was dying... I said to her, you know, I really want another child. And she said, enough's enough. And I said, I'm actually not going to listen to you because she said, I'm not going to live to see this child. And she willed herself to live and was there at the bris of my fourth child, Levi. And she got up at the bris. She held him, which she could barely use her arms at that point, they, right after she became paralyzed completely. And she held him and she said, my whole life, Sherry and I agreed on everything. So we never really fought. But on this one, we absolutely disagreed. I said, no more children. And she said, yes, more children. And now I'm holding. And this is how I know that I can die now because she's ready to go on without me. And I knew I was okay. So we had Levi. And then I always say that children in the Torah, which is our tradition, says that children bring luck and money. And each one of my children has brought luck and money. And after we had four, my mother had died and I desperately wanted a fifth. And my doctor and my husband were like, shop is closed. It's not happening. <laughs> and I was grieving. I couldn't let it go. And I had dreams about a fifth child, a boy. And it became like my other kids were like, mom, are we not enough? And I was like, you're enough. You're enough. I don't know what's going on here. And about two and a half years ago, my son came home and he said, I want to bring someone home to live with us. And I was like, please don't let it be a turtle. I don't like reptiles. <laughs> I don't like reptiles and they smell. And then I thought, well, if it's a dog, I could take one more dog. We have one dog. It's not the worst thing to have a second dog. And he brought home a boy and he was 15 and he was living in a group home and he had hair down to his waist and nails longer than anything you've ever seen and didn't know how to use a fork and knife. And he brought him home and I realized this was the child that I had been waiting for my whole life. Wow. I just didn't know it. Wow. I didn't realize it was going to be non-biological. How, so, how did your son know this child? So they were at a special school together, and they had met in math class. And this, son, this boy was living in a group home, and he had been there for two and a half years. And it really was like when a miracle walks into your home and lands on your front yard or like in your sofa, all you just do is say thank you, and you're blessed. And so it was not an easy process to get him to be ours. And he has parents. But Joseph is ours. And it's beautiful because his name was Joseph. And in the Bible, Joseph is the one that's thrown into the pit and rescued and reaches incredible heights. And we just finished applying to – he just finished applying to Wesleyan, Brown, Berkeley. Jesus. So I have no doubt that he will live out his namesake. How long has he been your son? So he's not our son because he has You're, parents. But he's – He's your foster he's ours. son. He's yeah. our foster son. And I'm very careful about that. I respect his parents very much. So he's been with us for two and a half years. He lives with us full time as of June because of the law and whatnot. Wow. And he's got his own room. He picked out his own bedding. That journey is an incredible one. <laughs> Did you get but, him to cut his nails? Well, the funny part is, you guys want to hear the craziest story. So my 93 aunt, I post on Facebook, all five kids back to school. She calls me up and she's like, Sherry, darling, I've been messing up on the birthday gifts. I'm only sending four. When did you have the fifth child? <laughs> Which I just loved because he looks like one of our kids now. I mean, he looks like a West Side Jewish kid from L.A. with short hair. But we never asked him for that. But it turns out that 
When you give someone love and attention and the ability to have needs and to state needs, that they make really good decisions. And so his hair incrementally got shorter. The beard started to go. The nails incrementally got shorter. He learned to sleep in a bed. All those things that you learn by osmosis from being in a family, turns out love is really very powerful. Wow. Is he, was he Jewish? He is half Jewish. By birth. By birth. And, and really loves Judaism. And actually, one of the first conversations we had was his disappointment in not having a bar mitzvah. And my husband and I looked at each other and thought, you're Jewish? <laughs> like, we didn't even think he was Jewish. And he said, yeah, I'm Jewish. And um, it's, I mean, he's so much a part of our family. I, I do have to say that I have so much respect for my other children. Because to bring a 15, 16-year-old child in who would be the oldest child and to say to your other children, I have to do this, is like, Mom, you already have a full-time job. You write books. You do all this stuff. You would think they would have said to me, are you insane? And I love what our daughter said to us. Each of our children we met with individually and talked it out and did a lot of work with them individually about it. But my now 14-year-old at the time, she was 11, said to us, "Um, I'm kind of disappointed in you. And I said, why? She said, I don't think you get it. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you think this is a choice. This isn't a choice. This is an obligation. She said, we have a home and he needs to be a part of it. So do oh what you have God. to do. Oh, my God. And I sat there so shamed. I was like, oh, my God, I will do what I have to do. I'm so sorry. But just the wisdom of that, I'm, wow. I'm, I feel like Makes God endowed them with wisdom. <laughs> they're amazing little people. And yeah. they're not, they're not going to be star athletes. They're not going to the Olympics. They're very average kids, except they're kind. And mm-hmm. I'm incredibly proud that I have kind children. It seems to me that makes a lot of sense that you have kind children too. I tell people all the time, I really believe with all my heart that the most important job that we have is mothers. And then if we're lucky enough to have a wonderful husband, like it sounds like you do and I do, our biggest job is to raise our children well. And if you do that and you do that right, then you're passing it forward. And it's the, I believe without a doubt, it's the most important thing that we do. As, as Well, I also think, I mean, I feel very strongly that Parenting has a very loose definition in Judaism. The person that raises the child is the parent. So you don't have to be the biological parent. You don't have to be. You can be the mentor to a child in your school. Yes. And that's the most important role that you can play. Everybody needs someone in their life that has their back. Yeah. That's it. So I don't, I'm not so confined by these definitions of family and what it has to look like and all these different sort of paradigms. I'm really like... Do you have to have one person that has your back, that unconditionally loves you, and that you know you can turn to? And I feel like God gave us that opportunity. What's it like to build that kind of trust, though? Because it does take turns of experience with an individual to get to trust. It's not an instantaneous thing, I wouldn't imagine. With Joe, with our son? With Joe, yeah. That was not instantaneous by any stretch. And what I learned is that most people foster when children are small right? Because they're babies. But actually, the most precarious time for a child is the transition out of group living into independent living. So what happens is 50% of kids that were in group homes end up on the street within a year of transitioning out of the group home because they don't have any structure to go to. And less than 2% go to college, Less than that, even graduate. So what you're talking about is come 18, they're literally dropped off the map. So actually having the opportunity to foster a child between 16 and 18 is really, really important. But like you said, Leanne, they come in, they have trust issues, they have all kinds of things. I mean, it was a journey for us. And I remember the first time that he let us hug hug him. It was profound. And I asked for permission, but it was not in the first year and it wasn't in the second year. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and when I asked him, I said, can I hug you? And he said, yeah, I think so. And so that kind of patience and and um, really paying attention, I would think, to like mirroring what he is experiencing and, and being trauma-informed in a way is critical. What, how would you advise somebody who's thinking about fostering or who, who has encountered a child perhaps that they've considered fostering. Um, Well, so we technically don't foster him because he's 18. Uh And so I have to say that out loud because fostering is a process where you, before 18. So he lives with us and he functions in the role of a child. Right. But the process of taking in a child is 
extraordinary. And it's not for everyone. And I'm not a patient person. I just want to let people know, like, I'm not an angel. Like, I get frustrated. I overeat chocolate chips sometimes. Like, I'm very, like, gritty. And I'm not this person that's like, oh, my God, I could take in a child. Like, I think it's one of those things. Sometimes you do things because God set them in front of you and you just do it. If we thought about it too much, we wouldn't have done it because it's crazy. We're not, we, we don't have unlimited funds. We don't have, you know, we didn't have an extra bedroom. Everything about it sounded crazy. And yet both my husband and I were like, it's entirely crazy, but it's entirely right. Well, mm-hmm. it's Besherit, really. Yeah. It was meant to be. Besherit yeah, is meant yeah. to be. No, And things happen. I think that the hardest thing that people have is to identify that, right? Like this was supposed to be the way that mm-hmm. it is. And you opened up your arms. And it didn't make any sense. Like, if you said, people said to us, like, you can't afford this. Like, even our, you know, our banker was like, what are you guys doing? Like, and you know what we decided to do? We don't go out to eat. That's just not, it's not something we do. We never go out to eat. We cook our own food. Turns out you can save a lot of money. And turns out if you save that money, if you don't go out to eat once a week and you put it together, it kind of puts together, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. a kid. Are you going to educate him? Uh, University? Yes, yes, yes. He's going to go to one of the colleges we, he's applied to. Will he get um, scholarship? Yeah, he'll have financial aid, and, which I I was emancipated when I was 17. And the full story of this, which you need to hear, is that when I was 17, um, my father was no longer capable of being a parent. And so I emancipated and became financially independent. And so I put myself through school and through life since I was 17. And Many people stepped forward, one family in particular, Joanne and Norm Panich, and they truly helped me. And when I went to pay them back many years later, they said to me, just pay it forward. Like you guys say, say it forward. And I was always waiting for the opportunity to pay it forward. And I was always looking for it, like philanthropic opportunities, but nothing seemed to really fit. And then Joe came into our life. (laughs) And it was like, got it, God. I'm clear. We're clear. <laughs> just in case you didn't want to put a burning bush, yeah. you just put a child, right? So, But the fact that you were able to recognize that is an f- amazing accomplishment. I, I, can, I can 100% assure you that not everybody would have done the same thing. There's not a shadow of a doubt that if you had 10 people in a room that probably nine of them would have said no. Well, it's funny, Rebecca. You know, my experience with people is that they're very good. And a very small number of people make it seem like they're not good. You know, people are like, the foster system is broke. Everybody I dealt with on the front lines working one-on-one with Joe and in his line are good people and deeply committed to him. It's just that these are huge systems. And so it's a few bad seeds that make it. My experience is that people are good. And maybe it's a Pollyanna or a very optimistic view of the world. But I work with a lot of people every day. And people want to do good. And some people get derailed because of trauma, because of drama, because of illness, because of mental illness. But most people want to do good. I want to go back to something you said, which is got it, God. You said got it, God. Got it, God. And I've read your books. And I feel like your books are a way that you bring your own moments of got it, God into high relief for other people to benefit from. I love that you said that, Leanne. I've never thought of it in that way. So the first book I wrote was called We Plan God Laughs with Random House. And when I wrote it, I didn't realize people were going to read it, right? Like (laughs) when you're writing a book, you have something to say. And then it went to the top 100 in all books. And I laughed so hard because people had comments for me and emails. And I was kind of like offended. And I didn't realize that, oh, my God, people are going to hear this and it's going to resonate for them. And it really was about seeing those moments in your life is that we plan and God laughs. Sometimes you think your life is going to go in this very clear direction and it goes in anything but. And how do you see those opportunities as ways to move forward as opposed to get stuck and to get paralyzed? So that was really interesting. When I wrote my second book, Thresholds, which became a Vanity Fair pick, which was so crazy because Taylor Swift was on the cover and I love Taylor Swift. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that's so PC, but I do love her. She's an independent woman, businesswoman. She's for uh, she's for the greater good too. She's made yes. her contracts do good for other artists. Which she's is very amazing. good for other artists, and she's a strong businesswoman and a role model. So when I published Thresholds, it was how to thrive through life's most difficult moments. And what I found was after I wrote the first book, people 
really understood not getting paralyzed, but they needed like the how-to book. Like, how do I actually do that? Like, what does that look like in real time? So that when I say, got it, God, now what? And I gave them real tools and tips. So one of them was for a year, every email response I put in a file on my computer and waited 24 hours before I sent it out. I called it the wait box. What I wanted to do was learn the power of the pause to really see what was being said as opposed to my reaction to what was being said. And it's funny, in a year, I only got two complaints about not getting an email response within 24 hours because I thought there's such urgency in the world. Everybody's going to complain about it. Turns out nobody really cared. The other thing is no email went out in the exact same way I wrote it 24 hours before. Everything shifted by tone, by tenor. Everything was far less reactive. And what I saw was a huge decrease just in those little misunderstandings. I don't have a lot of conflict in my life, but sometimes you have little misunderstandings, especially in email, especially in text, a huge decrease in it. And so I developed a thing called a weight box. And that was one of the tools in thresholds. And people really responded to it because once they saw, got it, God, they wanted to know, now what, God? Yeah. Now what? Now what do I do? And so it was a lot of tools and tips and working on a third yeah. book. The, the um, pause box idea, it seems to make so much sense to me because we don't have community. We don't have people we can talk through things with in advance of responding. So, Well, I tell everyone to get their own personal board of directors. That is five people that you aspire and inspire you, but are not... Don't get Beyonce. She's not on your board of directors, right? Someone just a little above you. And they're your five people on your personal board of directors that you consult on a regular basis and put them in five different areas of your life. I have my own board of directors and people that don't know each other so that when you do have questions, thoughts, that you really have a community of people that can give you honest feedback. They can't say to you, yes, I agree, but say, you know, I don't agree. No, this is a whole trust yeah. thing. Right? So to find five <clears throat> people in your life really like that, I call my personal board of directors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they really are the people that I go to. I have noticed since the last 15 years or so with everybody with their phones and their this and their that, that there seems to be um, less familial intimacy than there was when I grew up. Certainly, I'm, I'm going to guess when all of us grew up. What is your feeling on that? How do you talk to your people that are in your So universe? if you remember, to get a number of someone you didn't know, you had to call 411 and speak to an operator. Do you remember this? And when I was a kid, I used to talk to that 411 operator like she was a personal friend. And I remember once my mother came home and – you had to pay for the phone, right? So she's like, get off the phone. And I kept giving her the hand signal, like five more minutes, five more minutes. After 45 min minutes, my mother's like, get off the phone. Who are you talking to? And I said, it's the 411 operator. Her husband left her. She's working three <laughs> jobs. She can't live like this. Just mom, give it a second. Yeah. And all that was practice in intimacy, right? All those things that we did in our life, talking to the grocery store clerk, Coming in, coming out was practice on intimacy. What technology's done, and I'm a big fan of technology, it's expedited our rate of currency, but it's eliminated our intimacy. So people are unpracticed at that normal interactive yeah. way of being in the world. I kibitz all the time with everybody. I love and that my, you said kibitz. My You're so kid, cute, Leanne. <laughs> and my kid, I'm, I'm, I'm an Irish Catholic German Jew from Indiana, so like I've got all <laughs> kinds of uh, reference. Um, but I do it because I want my children to walk through the world talking to people and recognizing that you just have a little, you have just a little fun. So one of the things I connection. do every day is no matter what elevator I get into, I walk into the elevator and I say hello to everybody. In yeah. it. And people think, I've lost my rockers. And often people will look at me and say, like, do I know you? And I say, I just want you to know that I saw you and I see you today. Yeah, yeah. And I can't tell you how many people have said to me, thank you. I am so unnoticed. I'm invisible. It's so yeah. You know yeah, how you see Huge. people with their little tags sticking up? You know, I'm always yeah. the person yeah. that's yeah. going around and tell them, oh, you have a little seat we in have your to, tooth. This is You're part like, of teaching our children well, though, I yeah. have to say right. in this day and age. And when you see someone that 
uh, serves in the army, you say thank you for your service. Yeah, all the time. To yeah. really acknowledge people in a serious way. Thank you for my coffee. And <laughs> in our house, each of our children, they have a play date with another kid. They have to walk them to the door at the end and greet them at the door at the beginning. As I raised my four sons with my husband, we had dinner together almost every night. Oh. And we all lived in a no-phone zone. But every single night at dinner, we would sit at the table and we would have a conversation about the best and worst. And we would we went around the table, what happened to you today? What was good and wasn't so good? And I'm further ahead in my family life than you both are. And now I have four sons that are intimately close to each other. They're like constantly together. Mm. You can't wish for that to happen. You have to make that happen. And as parents, we have the responsibility. If, when they were getting into it, I have, I have four men, four, four grown men, you know, sons now. You know, they were smacking in the back of the head. You know, they would wrestle, they would push. But when it got too much and they were really on each other's case, I said to them, they've teased me about this now. I said to them, you need to stop it. You need to love each other. You need to care for each other. And you need to cherish each other. And I'm not kidding. I would. I and say to my kids, you need to be for each other more than you're for me. It's, and yeah, it's con- you have to tell them this. Although I would say, you know, it's very hard to parent, <laughs> and we can do everything we think is right. And our children are their own little autonomous beings and become their own people. Yeah. It's there's a little bit of genetics, there's a little bit of environment, and then there's a lot of luck. And I'm so blessed. Rebecca, that you have this experience with your children, but I have four very different children and now a fifth. And I would like to think that I have so much influence, but I don't. They came out as their own little packages. They did. They do. They all do. But there there are things that, that we can sort of maneuver them into being like having a no phone zone. It's not negotiable. Mm-hmm. You know, now they're grown up, they don't do it. But when they were growing up and they first had their phones, this phone does not belong on the table. But a no. lot of parents struggle with it. It's hard. I mean, this is how they communicate. This is, you know, I, we aren't allowed any phones at the dinner table. But, you know, there's not a day that goes by that one kid doesn't say to me, this is a separate thing. I'm doing homework. It's like, then don't do it at the, don't do it at the dinner table. Like, right. But there's constant, you know, it's hard, it's hard to be a parent it's in this hard, day and age, you, especially because they know far more technology than we do. Oh, my God. So We're like you're parenting compared to them. in last place. Right. You're constantly behind the eight ball. And so it's really hard to sometimes say like, I mean, I remember once we put on parental controls on our son's phone. I'll never forget this. And he came upstairs and he said, I want to let you know the parental controls are not very good. And I overrode them. But I put the new ones in that you actually want. So they're all good to go now. <laughs> That's and I so just, beautiful. I just That's looked at him kid. like, I love you, but <laughs> clearly there's no reason to have these things here, yeah. right? Because he could override yeah. them, you know? Yeah, you I, I feel that way. Yeah. I feel that way too. I mean, our kids are in the same zone. I have a 14 and a 16-year-old, mm-hmm. both boys, very like there's no scaling parenthood with them because they're such different people. Mm-hmm. And um, my, my younger child sociology teacher, uh, I went on a field trip yesterday and he asked me what parental controls I have in place. And of course, he placed two girls in front of me who don't even have Instagram accounts. And my kid has almost 6,000 followers on Instagram. Wow. I mean, like it's, it's a, and I have one kid who's that kid and the other kid who does not care about mm-hmm. social media. And, um, I feel strongly that I need to have conversations with my children about how to conduct themselves, but I don't surveil their social media. I do not. I will not. Mm -hmm. And I've told them that I expect to have, and I have a great relationship with my kids, but I expect to have enough trust with them that they won't that they won't do things that are harmful to other people. I'm having other conversations with them that cultivate that. I don't center those cult- those conversations around technology. I center them around how we are as people. And not everybody has my heart and my experience and the loving parents that I had and the perspective that I have. I just think it's the wild, wild west. It like is. We're all just trying yeah, to figure it out. Trying to figure I think it out. We're just all totally trying to true. figure it out. And I think sometimes I, I don't worry about my kids, but I worry about who's contacting my kids. Like, yeah. it's not so easy. And yeah. I I just think the way I say it is I try my best on a daily basis to do good before them and before God. Mm-hmm. And I really do. I just try my best. And sometimes 
it's a little better, sometimes a little worse. <laughs> and they'll be in therapy for something. So I always make a list on the refrigerator. Yeah. Put that on the list on the refrigerator. You'll save money in the yeah, back end. I, I bought a book called How to Traumatize Your Children, and it was the joke. I used to keep it in the glove compartment in my car, and they were like, are you trying to traumatize right. us? And I was like, well, I'm <laughs> so going true. to somehow. What are you thinking about now these days? What are what are the sort of top-of-mind subjects? And I think most what keeps me up at night is the mental health crisis going on between 14 and 24-year-olds. We went from a society that at 1 in 50 kids were committing suicide to 1 in 12, and it's a huge number that's even attempting. We now have kids that go to college, and one in four of them have a pre-existing diagnosis of mental illness. It's probably underreported because it's probably closer to 1 in 3 because of sexual violence. And what I'm worried about is that we're raising a generation that has deep seated loneliness and doesn't want to live. And what my mother used to say to me is go make the world better. But if you don't want to get out of bed in the morning, you can't even go make the world better. What do you attribute this to? A lot of people say that it's caused by technology. I think that's a factor. I think we are bombarded with so much information that it's overwhelming from a young age. We're bombarded with imagery. I think the way we parent is different. I think the environment is different. We used to go out and play till 10 at night and come home. Our kids can't go out and play in the neighborhood we live in. Um, it's a whole bunch of factors. I didn't realize the, how high the suicide rate mm-hmm. was. So, one in 12? One in 12. And, and also— And on a college campus, just to give you an example, last year between winter break and spring break on four campuses, there were seven suicides. Seven. So you're talking about the lack of hope and the lack of desire to live. Right. So that keeps me up at night because, I mean, a lot of things keep me up at night. Hunger keeps me up at night. But also what keeps me up is the loss of dialogue, that people are forgetting how to communicate and to have real intimacy. What keeps me up at night also is that people have forgotten that religion is joyful. Like, I want to practice joyful Judaism. I want to practice joyful yoga. I want people to feel joy again. And I think people are so overwhelmed financially, parenting, all the different pressures that we put on ourselves that joy and laughter has lost the conversation. So I always try to tell people, find joy every day for five minutes. Mm -hmm. So that's the antidote. That's the antidote. How do you deal with that, though? I mean, I would imagine then because of the job that you have, that you have met parents that have lost children to suicide. I've buried a lot of children. And what leads up to that? I'm stunned to hear that statistic. One in 12. Is this nationwide? Uh, This is nationwide. Yeah. It's actually going even further. It'll probably be released. That'll be one in 10 very soon. Um, And you said attempted is even higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the success, it's 18 to 24. But it starts at 14 is really the issue. So mental illness is not really understood. We understand about 6% of the brain. And I would love for us to come to a place in the world where we see mental illness as mental health, right? We don't see it as illness. So the way you get a checkup each year for your physical body, you get a checkup on your mental well-being, that people have preventative mental health. I really want us to address this crisis of preventative mental health so that we aren't finding de facto that the star of the football team, which I get this story all the time, most popular kid in school committed suicide. Yeah. Because you, we didn't understand his deep existential loneliness. Do, do you think that that takes the shape of like taking Daniel Siegel's work on the, the sphere of awareness, like meditation, teaching, proactively teaching people how to understand themselves as beings beyond just their brain and their body? I think it's even bigger than Daniel Siegel. I think there is all kinds of interesting science out there. We have a preventative mental health treatment being developed at University of Chicago where you could go in for knee surgery and they can check to see if you have depression, anxiety, just because you're checking your knee, right? There's so much out there that is on the preventative side and we could really change the conversation so that people aren't don't feel stigmatized talking about that they need support and they need help and that every sort of sign of depression, medicine isn't the antidote, right? Right now, we're everybody's taking medicine for something, and doctors are constantly throwing out these antidepressants. I'm all for medicine when it's really treated for, for a particular problem, but just throwing medicine to get rid of feelings of sadness is not necessarily the answer. And by the way, when you have a loss, you have tremendous yeah. sadness. Yeah. 
You don't need medicine the next well, day necessarily. I mean, that's why that's why I mentioned Dan, Dan Siegel's work because yeah. it's really not. It's not. It's actually used in place of medicine, and it really is about. Yeah, I don't think it's one or the other. Yeah. I'm not binary like that, yeah. but I think there's about. There's a place for medicine. There's a place for meditation. There's a pre- place for preventative mental health, but it does keep me up at night. Yeah. I children killing themselves because they've lost hope. That's what that's what keeps me up at night more than anything right now. But a lot of things keep me up at night. I I'm a person who thinks deeply about the world and how each of us have a urgency in solving something in the world. And you've been that way your whole life. I guess so. I mean, my, <laughs> you know, but I think everybody, if they're really listening, knows that they have a solution in them and that their solution may be that they're just supposed to make someone laugh today. Mm-hmm. Their solution might be that they're supposed to buy that guy outside a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Their solution might be that they're supposed to post on social media that my life isn't so perfect. Right. By the way, welcome to the world. Yeah. Right. I always laugh when I see 18 years of marriage, perfect bliss. I'm like, that person's not married, right? <laughs> I want to post on social media, 18 years of marriage, still hanging in one day at a time. Right, right. Um, Rebecca's husband has a hilarious thing that he says about this, which is um, we've been married for 42 years. It's been 16 years of perfection. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Something like that. I mean, I'm butchering it. And I would say, sort of like, we've been married 18 years 17 was really hard. 12 was really hard. Like certain years had their moments, you know? I really do believe though, now that I have some distance in being married for a long time, um, and there were many times along the way where I thought, I really don't want to be married anymore. I really believe today as I look back on my life and I look back on the lives of my friends, many of whom have been divorced, that they should never have gotten divorced. Just get through it. You know, so you have a shitty year, so go to separate corners. Unless you're having somebody who's, <laughs> yes. you know, stealing from you, or beating you, you know, stealing your money, cheating on you, like, flagrantly and blatantly and being disrespectful. If it's none of those things that he's just a pain in the ass, he's such a pain in my ass, or this, whatever it is that's just, that's kind of grinding thing that happens when two people live together, just go to separate rooms for a minute. And then come back and try to reacquaint each other. And I really believe that many, many, many of the marriages that have broken up wouldn't have broken up if they just gave it a minute. Well, I say to people, people think they're in a marriage with another person. What they're in is a covenant. They're in a covenant with another human being and the enterprise of marriage. So sometimes you don't like your husband. Sometimes you don't like your wife. But you're still covenant to this institution. So if you can stay covenanted to the larger, greater ideal, whether it's marriage, whether it's work, because sometimes people are like, I've just had a, you know, they have a Jerry Maguire day, right? They're like, I just hate my work and I'm leaving. And if you're covenant to something greater, then you can get through those sort of vicissitudes of daily life. Just take a breath. What I say to people is, do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? (laughs) <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> right? Do you want to be right or you want to be in relationships? So for me, being right is overrated because you're right today, but you're wrong tomorrow. But being in relationship is never overrated. Whatever she, relationship with that I is. I completely agree. Whether that's in friendship or sexual relationship, whatever, work relationships. Can, can I put a, a, an addition to that? I think you talk about the vicissitudes of life. I mean, people make mistakes, big mistakes, mm-hmm. and we're so conditioned to believe we have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And sometimes doing imperfect things helps us to have a more perfect vision of what life really is, to have more compassion for one another. I think this expectation that we're somehow supposed to constantly be perfect and show the world that we've got it all together I mean, that's what social media is. I want you to consume me in the way that I'm showing you. And I've got this perfect life, right? Actually, what makes us deeply connected to another human being is when we can show our vulnerabilities. Yeah. When you see yeah. another person, I'm having a really hard day and I just need you to listen, is when you really feel pulled toward another human being. Yeah. Right? It's not yeah. when you, the person says to you, I've had a perfect day. Everything went great. Do you want to talk? Mm-hmm. You're like, really? No. Yeah. But if you say to another person, you know, this is hard and I'm struggling. That's when we find real deep alliance with another human being. And that is the essence of not feeling lonely. And I really think that I have three thoughts on loneliness. Loneliness is, I think, one of the ails of our society is that we feel very lonely. Lonely is that there is a deep-seated emptiness. 
There's also just being alone, which is when we're just alone in the world, and you can be alone in a group of 5,000 people, where you're okay being yourself, but you're not deeply wired in. And then there's connected. And you can be deeply connected totally on a mountaintop by yourself, looking at the ocean from afar, or you can be deeply connected with 5,000 people and feel like you are part and parcel and warp and woof of every single human being in that space. And when we feel deeply connected, that's where we need to live. And so our job each day is to strive to that. I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for another 10 hours. It is overwhelming to be in your presence. You, you emanate such love, peacefulness, <laughs> and I'm so clarity. I'm so by that. Really. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy listening to you. I love being with you guys. Thanks a lot. Next on Say It Forward, Brett Novick is a model, a philanthropist, and a fashion entrepreneur. He created Good Human, the athletic leisure clothing brand, to share inspired, aspirational messages featured on the clothing itself, and to think it all started in a spare bathroom. Brett and his company partner with different charitable causes, and he donates a percentage of all sales to these charities. He'll share what inspires him most and will explain how a Florida kid went from model to soap star to fashion mogul, and how through it all, he was able to preserve his sense of wonder, his sense of humor, and his genuine humility. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Brett Novick on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 